0: We're going to be looking this morning at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verses 1 through 6. Would you like to stand for the reading of God's word together? 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict, for our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak of covetousness, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the riches of your word. We ask, God, that you would now open our eyes to see the wonders of your word and that in doing so, Lord, our hearts would be built up in faith. Lord, that we would become even greater disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ, And that, Lord, we would follow the example of our uh, brother Paul as he writes to us concerning these important issues. And we give you all the glory and all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in our past few messages, we have seen as Paul has shown us the marks of the elect of God. Those who have been chosen of God are marked by a work of faith, a labor of love, a patience of hope, a gospel that is empowered by the Holy Spirit, a new life that mimics Christ's life. Oh, that does make a difference. (laughs) Thank you, Luke. A joy that soars above circumstances, a behavior that is exemplary, a witness that is strong Blaring and ongoing, a new allegiance to God as his happy slave, and finally, a glad willingness to wait in hope of Christ's return. So, Paul has shown us the marks of those who are truly born again believers, the elect of God, members of his church, and so he's able to address the church in Thessalonica as the church and to do so confidently because he has seen these marks of the elect in their lives. And now he's going to show us the marks of faithful uh, of a faithful minister of the gospel. Uh, he is now going to turn the table around and describe what we should be looking for when we are looking for a faithful minister of the gospel. And that begins with, Preaching with the power of God. Secondly, committed to the truth of God. Third, living a life of sexual purity before God. Fourth, obedient to the will of God by being ordained to the ministry. Number five, accountable to God in all that he preaches. Number six, seeking only to please God. Now, these six attributes uh, mark the life of a faithful minister of the gospel in every age of church history, including our own. This is what to look for when you're looking for a minister of the gospel. Now, Paul, uh, we can tell from the context, he was being criticized from every side. Uh, People were accusing him of not truly being an apostle—he's not one of the twelve. He's being accused of false motives and of wrong motives, and so generally he—he's having to deal with a lot of junk. Okay, a lot of stuff. Now, Leon Morris, a a biblical historian, uh, writes that there's probably never been such a variety of religious cults and philosophic systems as in Paul's day. East and West had united and intermingled to produce an amalgam of real piety, high moral principles, crude superstition, and gross license. Oriental mysteries, Greek philosophies, and local godlings competed for favor under the tolerant aegis of Roman indifference. They just didn't care holy men of all creeds and countries, popular philosophers, magicians, astrologers, crackpots and cranks, the sincere and the spurious, the righteous and the rogue, swindlers and saints, jostled and clamored for the attention of the credulous and the skeptical. Now, if you follow that line of of observation, you realize that the Apostle Paul was living in a time in which everybody was making a claim and criticizing everyone else who was making a claim. So he's being accused of just being another one of these folks. And so in this passage, Paul responds to his critics by listing the marks of a truly faithful minister of the truth, a minister of the gospel. He uses the phrase, as you know, several times in this passage in order to emphasize the point that the people he's writing to were actually there. They saw this all happening. And so he's able to refer back to it. And he occasionally refers to, as you know, as you know. And he also mentions, as God is witness, as God is witness. And so the critics were not there the critics only showed up afterwards. These are the, the people who swoop in as soon as there's something going on with the hopes of being able to co-opt it, to be able to recruit these young believers into their, these other uh, ways of seeing and, and the other kinds of beliefs. So wherever God is on the move, Satan is going to move as well. And he's going to try to thwart the ministry. You always can know when you're in the middle of a move of God because Satan attacks it almost immediately. He tries to kill the baby in the cradle whenever he can. And another way of thinking of this is the tall trees that get hit by lightning. It's only when you begin to actually accomplish something in the, the spirit and to be able to actually show up on the spiritual landscape that Satan says, aha, over there. And off he goes to attack it and try to distort it, to kill it, to make a mockery of it. So Satan's game plan is very consistent. He approaches us with the questions, did God really say that? Is that really true? How can you be so sure? Isn't there another way of looking at things? Just trying to sow seeds of doubt. Now remember, we come to God by faith. Adam and Eve fell from grace and from, God, from faith because of the seeds of doubt that were sown by Satan uh, in the heart of Eve and then later in Adam's heart as they began to question whether or not God is really good, whether or not they're just being played by God, that there's something better than the will of God and all you have to do is disregard what you know to be the will of God and you'll be like God's. You'll be able to make it up for yourself. You'll be able to do your own thing. Be your own person. And so Adam and Eve fell from the obedience of faith into the disobedience of doubt. And the same is true today. And we come, we come to God, we, we walk away from the, the disobedience of our doubt and our disbelief and our skepticism by believing in our hearts, which then results in the obedience of faith. And we get back to the original purpose for which we were created. We were created to live for the glory of God. We were created to participate in his display of goodness and wisdom in our own unique circumstances. To be saved is to be saved for this purpose, It's not just so you can go to heaven someday. It's so that you can fulfill the purpose for which you were created and now for which you have been redeemed and which ultimately you will be judged, both as a believer and an unbeliever. All will stand before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account for what they have done in the body. And so Satan's game is always to sow seeds of doubt. So, beware of falling into the trap, which is common today, especially in our age of postmodernism. Postmodernism is basically a rejection of the very idea that anything can be known to be truly true. And so, rather than looking for the truth, the postmodernist is just looking for a fantasy that works for him or her. And that's why you see some of the crazy things going on out there. As people are looking for a fantasy that works for them. And they don't care that it's not true. It could be Star Wars. It could be any number of uh, media things. It could be hobbies and activities. You know, we are dealing with an age in which people have stopped looking for the truth. And now they're just looking for a good fantasy that gives them a social life, that gives them a calendar of events to attend, that gives them some Books and magazines and blogs and such to read gives them something to argue about. It gives them a sense of being alive because they have tried to create their own reality. So beware of that trap of making a virtue out of being skeptical. The truth is knowable. Jesus is the truth. Unbelievers are foolish We see in Psalm 14 in verse 1, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And it doesn't matter how many degrees you have after your name. If you say in your heart, there is no God, it's all for nothing. You're a fool. So Paul begins by saying that the work that he and his team had done was not in vain. That they did not fail. That the fact that it was difficult did not mean that it was a failure. Now, he writes, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. The phrase in vain uh, is one word, kinos, and it means empty, useless, pointless, fruitless, futile, to no purpose. He's saying, our work among you was not fruitless or pointless or useless or empty. It produced fruit. Instead, Paul was, his coming was successful. It was impactful. It made a difference. As you know, is used in this passage in order to remind the, the readers that they were there. They saw what happened. They experienced it themselves. It was hard, and it's always hard, to confront people with the truth of the gospel. People don't like to hear the gospel because in order to appreciate the good news, they have to hear and understand the bad news. You're a sinner. You're under the judgment of God. You're going to be condemned to hell if you do not repent and believe that God has sent a rescuer, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it takes the kind of courage and endurance that Paul and Silas and Timothy had. They displayed these qualities of character in their ministry of the gospel. And what's more, they did not allow their suffering and the mistreatment that happened to them uh, to change their message or to even adjust their approach to the ministry. I mean, think about it, you come out of a town like Philippi and you're made to leave town because you have made so many people angry. Now that could be a lot of pressure just to adjust your approach. You know, you can imagine them on the way down to Thessalonica saying, you know, maybe we need to take a different approach here. You know, we're really getting beaten up a lot, guys. But no, but even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, you know, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. The temptation is always to tone things down, to be less confrontational with both the pagans and the Jews. Now, don't misunderstand here. I'm not saying that you have a license to be rude I 'm not saying that you should ever speak as though you don't care whether the person you talk to uh, believes this or not. You do care, and so, as Paul writes in other places, we persuade men. his goal is to change the hearts of men by opening up their minds, but he knows that that, that it unless the Holy Spirit moves, that is hopeless, and so you don't get your cues as to whether you're doing things right by whether or not the person you're talking to agrees with you whether or not they repent because many most will not jesus said broad is the way that leads to destruction and many go there by that route few are those who uh, come into the kingdom and come to life you know and so you don't uh, you don't get your tactics and your strategies from whether or not you have a massive response or whether you have just a few responding. Paul's team repeated the exact same strategy that got them beaten up in every other city. And that takes both courage and boldness. Now, I wanna define boldness briefly. This is not in my notes, but sometimes I think we need to be, uh, get a little clarification on this word. Bold does not mean crude or rude or inconsiderate. You can speak quietly and be bold. Because boldness, biblical boldness, is quiet confidence in the truth of what you're saying. Quiet confidence. You can whisper something to somebody and it can be extremely bold. I mean, think about it. Somebody's living in a particular kind of sin, And you just lean in close and say, I don't mean to offend you. But God hates what you're doing. And you will be judged for that. Don't think that you're going to get away with anything. No one is going to get away with anything, including you. That's bold. Even if you say it quietly. So remember that. You're not being bold just by being rude. You're bold when you speak the truth quietly and confidently knowing that it's likely to get a strong emotional, very negative reaction. And this is a struggle, a death struggle. Uh, Reading John MacArthur's commentary on this subject, he writes, this is a death struggle ministry. There's always pressure to compromise, to avoid that to not offend, to soften the message, to make it popular, to sugarcoat what you say, to find a way to make it acceptable to sinners. But I just remind you, the mark of a great minister, the mark of a great leader, is not how little it takes to start him, it's how little it takes to stop him. That's the mark of leadership. He continues with the confidence in God. And there is no stopping Paul, none. We had the boldness in our God. There was an audacity in his ministry. This is the source of his confidence, not in his flesh, not in his strength, not in his knowledge, not in his experience, not in his wisdom, but in our God. He found power in God, he trusted in God, and in God's power to do whatever God deemed his will. That's the mark of a true minister of the gospel. Now our message did not arise from incompetence, corruption, or con artistry. In 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 3 we read, "'For our exhortation did not come from error, or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. So he's listing three things here for us to take note of. Now, these three things are what a minister of the gospel will avoid. Number one, the errors of incompetence. Number two, the uncleanness of corruption, moral corruption. And number three, the deceit of con artistry, these three weaknesses of of competence and, and moral character are not only the causes of ministerial harm in Christian churches, but they're also the sources of entirely new cults and false religions. To give you an example for each, this is Mary Baker Eddy. She's the founder of Christian Science. Now, even those who who were in agreement with her had this observation to make about her uh, new enlightened view of Christianity. I don't know how to pronounce this man's name. Damodar Shinghal. Shinghal. He's a historian of religion. He writes, the Christian science movement in America was possibly influenced there's no real possibility here. It's obvious if you know anything about uh, Hinduism. It's possibly influenced by India. The founder of this movement, Mary Baker Eddy, in common with the Vendantans, believed that matter and suffering were unreal, that a full realization of this fact was essential for relief from ills and pains. The Christian science doctrine has, a na- has naturally been given a Christian framework but the echoes of the Vedanta in its literature are often striking. So here's someone who is just, you know, as an amateur reading uh, Indian, you know, Hindu uh, doctrine in religion, uh, decides to take these ideas and Christianize them. Uh, this idea goes way back, the idea that Jesus uh, during uh, the the uh, years between his time in Egypt and his time uh, when he uh, starts his ministry, you know, that he went to India, that he went to the Far East, that he learned to become some kind of a uh, guru, and then came back and brought all of these new enlightened doctrines to the Jews, uh, and he just simply Judaized them. He just gave them a Jewish facade and a, a Jewish patina, and then taught basically the doctrines of uh, Eastern religion. And that's ridiculous. This is an error of incompetence. Someone who has not studied, uh, but has simply uh, imported the things from other sources and given them a little Christian uh, patina. Now, another example is this gentleman here. This is the Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh. Uh, his teachings, uh, according to uh, the dictionary here, his teachings on free sex, marriage, and family relationships contradicted traditional values. Boy, did they, okay? And aroused a great deal of anger and opposition around the world. His movement was widely considered a cult because it was a cult. Rajneesh was seen to live in ostentation an offensive opulence. He had like 24 Rolls Royces. And he would just drive a different one every day. Slowly around his compound out in, in uh, Wasco, yeah, Antelope, here in Oregon. Oh, this was a period in history to avoid. Anyway, <clears throat> it says, while his followers, most of whom had severed ties with the outside friends and family, and donated all or most of their money and possessions to the commune might be at the at a mere subsistence level. In other words, this is a money-making scheme, and uh, it is definitely uh, unclean and corrupt. The the uh, the whole idea of redefining morality uh, and authorizing and actually hosting. Uh, Sexual perversion uh, is just the epitome of what Paul's talking about. This is the uncleanness, uncleanliness of corruption. Now, this gentleman, you may not know him by face. You may not even know him by name. But you've probably heard of the religion that he has started. This is Ron L. Hubbard. And he is the founder of Scientology, which has a long history going way back into the early 50s. But Hubbard was quoted as telling a science fiction convention in 1948. Writing for a penny a word is ridiculous. He was a science fiction author. And so he says, if a man really wants to make a million dollars, the best way would be to start his own religion. And that's exactly what he did. In 2008, the Church of Scientology was estimated to bring in around $500 million in annual revenue. I could spend time on all of these guys, but I won't, because we're just wanting to make the point that what Paul's referring to is very real, even in our day, the deceit of con artistry is alive and well among us. And uh, we'll just keep moving on. False teachers are always proud, Paul tells us. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 3, if anyone teaches otherwise, other than the gospel that he is preaching and teaching, and does not consent to the wholesome words and even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, that means being like God rather than, you know, like Satan, he is proud, knowing nothing you know, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, right? But he's obsessed with disputes and arguments over words and from which every come envy and strife and reviling and evil suspicions. False religions are like, fu- are like fake maps of reality. They always lead one away from where they really are wanting to go. For example, here's a a map of Portland, Oregon in the metro area. And there we have all the, the familiar towns around the Portland metro area. Now if you look really closely, you'll notice there's something wrong with this map. It's got, it's got the you know, features like rivers and mountains and highways and it's even got I-5 going right through it. But the reality is that regardless of what you call it, it's not a map of Portland. It's a map of Seattle area, okay? Now, we're dealing with this all the time with false religions. They have all the same elements. You know, what's the, where do we come from? What's the meaning of life? What went wrong? What can we do about it? And what's coming in the future? They all have answers to these questions. They are religions. It's just they're false religions. They're like fake maps Then if you try to follow any one of those fake maps, you will not be able to find what you're looking for. Even though it looks like it's familiar, it's not familiar because you're not living in that place where that map is supposedly giving you a guide. False religions are instructions on how to live on a planet you don't live on, okay? And so don't trust in them. And then Paul begins to turn to the issue of his authority. He writes, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 4, A, but as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak. Now Paul had been approved by God. That's dokimas. And that means that he was approved as worthy after being tested. So there's a test that goes on before you are approved. This word is also in the perfect tense in the Greek, which means he had been approved with a lasting ongoing state of being approved. Okay, so he's received approval and he still has that approval. Now, in other words, what Paul is saying here is that he was not self-appointed. This is a big issue and I'm gonna go into some depth to talk about it. The story of the Apostle Paul becoming the Apostle Paul is a lot more complicated than some people realize. And because some of the arguments that he makes about his authority in a few places makes it sound like, I heard from God, therefore you just need to believe me. As though there's no one else involved. But that is not true. The Apostle Paul went through a process by which he became recognized as an apostle. And so we read in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 15, But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Now, there are many who will just read this passage and they won't even read it in a context. And they say, see, the Apostle Paul just went out into the desert, heard from God, and then came out preaching, and that was it. So if he can do it, so can I. If he can be self-appointed, so can I. But what does he say next? See, during this time, Christ revealed to Paul many things, and, and it's probably during this time that the doctrine of the body of Christ was uh, being uh, impressed upon him. You remember what Jesus said to him on the road to Damascus? He said, why are you persecuting me, Paul? Now, Paul, at some point, got got the message, if you touch my people, you're touching me. You know, why are you persecuting me? I'm not persecuting you. I'm persecuting all these Christians. But these Christians are members of the body of Christ and now Paul's the one who brings that doctrine forward later in his ep- his epistles that we are all members of the body of Christ with different functions within that membership now after this Peter went up to see or Paul went up to see Peter in Galatians 1:18 same passage of scripture then after 3 years i went up to jerusalem to see peter And remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now concerning the things which I write to you, indeed, before God, I do not lie. Paul is making his case of why he has authority as an apostle. Now, it is at this time that Peter and James gave Paul an initial green light to take the gospel to the Gentiles, okay? But it doesn't stop there. Paul's reputation began to grow among the churches. And we see in verse 21, afterward, I went up into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But they were hearing only that he who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God in me. So Paul's reputation among the churches is growing and spreading. Paul could have just continued in this status, but he chose to strengthen his relationship with the other apostles, and especially because Paul recognized that he had been given revelation concerning this issue of of circumcision, because he's the apostle to the Gentiles that the other apostles had not yet received, but they would but they hadn't received it yet. And so Galatians chapter two in verse one, we're still in the same passage where Paul said, I went out into the desert. Well, he didn't just stay in the desert. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. And I went up by revelation. That means I I was sent by God to go up and communicated to them that gospel, which I preach among the Gentiles but privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. So Paul is putting all his doctrinal cards on the table behind closed doors. He's not going up and preaching a sermon to the, to the masses and then going in and talking to the apostles about what he just said. Instead, he goes behind the scenes and says, now here's what I've been preaching to the Gentiles what do you think? That is humility. Paul, we're gonna see here, is he's not easily impressed by people, but he was careful not to cause division in the church. He's gonna be careful to share what he has to say in a way that doesn't divide the people before he talks to the other apostles. And the problem was the Judaizers. In Galatians 2 and verse 3, yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And this occurred because of false brethren, secretly brought in, who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. Bondage to what? Bondage to legalism. To whom we did not yield submission even for one hour that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. And so Paul, and also later Peter, remember the the vision of the animals in in the, the, the blanket, you know, coming down out of heaven, rise and eat, no way, Lord, I'm not gonna eat that. I'm Jewish. God says, don't call unclean what I've called clean. So Peter joins Paul in this argument that the Gentiles are not needing to be circumcised in order to become Christians. And so Peter and Paul rescued the church from this false doctrine. Now notice the wording in this next passage, also in Galatians chapter 2. This is an extended passage, but it, it gives us a window into Paul's thinking about this issue of being in submission to the offices of the apostles without being overly impressed by the individuals that hold those offices. That's a pretty tight rope to walk. And he says, but from those who seem to be something... Whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. That's pretty bold, okay? God shows personal favoritism to no man. For those who seemed to be something added nothing to me. In other words, I I went toe-to-toe with them and, and their doctrine and my doctrine were not incompatible, okay? But on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me as the gospel... For the circumcised was to Peter, for he who works effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Do you see how Paul is kind of threading this needle here? He's respecting the office and the importance of ordination within the church, but he's not overly impressed with the individuals holding those offices at any given moment. And so he is what we would call ordained. He's ordained, not just self-appointed, but actually recognized by other ministers of the gospel As having this responsibility and being sent, not just by God, but also by the church itself, to go and fulfill this ministry. Now, I know that uh, we are living in an era in which this kind of uh, self-appointment is a real problem. Self-appointment is a very, very serious problem in Christ's church throughout all of church history, but especially here today, because religious liberty in the US, remember there was a time in which every jurisdiction had its own official state religion. In in Great Britain, it's the Church of England, right? In other countries, it's Catholicism. You come to the United States, all of the 13 colonies had their own state or religion, and they kept it even after the constitution was put in place. It's the federal government that was not permitted to uh, establish or to interfere with the exercise of religion. But the states went on with their state religion right on up into uh, the 1900s. Now, self-appointed cult leaders answer to no one but themselves. This is a mark of a cult. They elevate themselves, putting themselves in positions of power, by telling others that they have been called by God. But you have to ask, does anybody else out there that's established in the community of God's people recognize your role in this way? Are you self-appointed or are you also re- recognized by the, the, the doctrinally sound uh, body of Christ? These people, their validation uh, is that they have their own testimony of what happened. And it, sometimes Paul is pointed to as justification for this. Well, he did it, so why can't I? But there was more to Paul's ordination than just his revelation and his isolation there in uh, the desert. So this is why we must support a careful ordination process where established faithful ministers ordained new faithful ministers. And if you look at the way in which ordination is normally done, it's a pretty arduous process. There are lots of ministers asking questions, uh, putting up theoretical or hypothetical situations and asking you, how would you respond to this? They also test your Bible knowledge. And all of that is good. We we want our our attorneys to be tested before they're uh, approved before the bar. Uh, we want our ministers also to be approved. We, we want our doctors to be tested before they're given the opportunity to uh, operate. You know, and it's the same is true for spiritual surgery as well. We want to make sure that the person who's, who's uh, counseling and preaching and teaching has been recognized by others and not just by him or her self. Now, if you disagree with what I'm saying, you can go online right now And become an official minister and be able to perform weddings and funerals and collect money and start your own cult. You can do that right here. And notice it says, get ordained instantly. No questions asked. That's the world we live in today. So let's be careful not to fall for it. Now, Paul writes that he's not pleasing men, but rather pleasing God in 1 Thessalonians 2.4. Not as pleasing men but God, who tests our hearts. The key to the Christian life is the Lordship of Christ. We live to please the Lord. We have only one person in this universe to please, and that is God. No one else is Lord but Jesus. And if he is Lord, then he is the one we are to please. No one else is Lord if he is Lord. Now, the one who is Lord would have us treat one another in ways that express his wisdom, his goodness, his kindness, his patience toward others rather than our own levels of all those things. So that, does, that means that when, when I am to love somebody as under the Lord, I'm to relate to that person as he would have me relate to them. Not as I would want to relate to them, and not as they would want me to relate to them, but rather as God would want me to relate to them. We love one another, and the phrase is, as to the Lord, which means as if we were doing this thing or either to or for the Lord himself. Now let's look at some passages where this phrase is used. Ephesians 5.22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now that means we are to submit to our husbands as if our husband was the Lord. And sometimes people go, whoa, that is total abuse. That is totally out of, uh, off the map there. But remember, the as to the Lord here is not saying without any qualification, but rather with extreme qualification. You're doing this as to a good and wise Lord. And a good and wise Lord is not going to ask you to commit crimes for him. Right? So a husband can't say to his wife, I want you to go shoplift for me. You, You submit as unto the Lord. And the Lord doesn't ask you to do that. You're to love your husband in ways that please the Lord. Not necessarily in ways that please your husband. Your husband... If he's a godly man, we'll probably be pleased. But if he's not a godly man, he probably will not be pleased because you don't just do the sinful things that he is asking you to do. You're doing these things as unto the Lord, and that is the boundary. That is the protection that you have. The same thing we see in Ephesians 6-7, with goodwill, doing service as to the Lord and not to men, talking about employees and employ in their uh, in their employment, doing these things as to the Lord. So, if the boss says, "I want you to cheat on this form, I want you to report less than it actually was," then you have to say, "I'm sorry, but I'm serving you as if you were the Lord, and the Lord would never ask me to cheat on a form like this." You see how this works? To be able to do something as unto the Lord means you are doing what is pleasing to him. The only one in the world, in the universe, you have to please is him. And he's saying, now I want you to turn and show kindness and respect and love and diligence and hard work and all these good things as if you were doing it for me. But if this person you're serving asks you to do anything that I would never ask you to do, then you have a, a basis upon which to say, I'm sorry, but with all due respect, I must be faithful to God. Colossians 3, verse 23, and whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. See, Paul is not concerned about pleasing men. He's concerned about pleasing God. But God wants him to take this gospel to the whole world. And that is going to bring a lot of people to faith in Christ. But in doing so, he's not doing it the way they would like him to do it. He's doing it the way the Lord would have them do it. And that means he could get beat up a lot. You get beat up a lot because you don't do it the way they would like you to do. We show our love for God by the way we love and care for one another as he directs and on his behalf. That's what it means. So flattery will, you know, you always hear the statement, flattery will get you nowhere. Well, No, flattery will get you somewhere. It'll get you to hell, okay? Flattery will get you into a whole lot of heat. First Thessalonians 2.5 For neither at any time did we use flattering words. As you know, you were there. You heard what we said. We never flattered you. Proverbs 29 verse 5 says, A man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. That's what flattery is all about. It's trying to trap somebody uh, by appealing to their pride. Say, you're such a smart person. You know, I really respect the way you think for yourself. And you're not going to let any of these wise counselors out here tell you what to do. (laughs) Flattery will get you somewhere. Straight to hell. Flattery is used to set a trap for others. It butters them up uh, to be deceived and taken advantage of. That's what flattery does. And if you're flattering anybody, don't kid yourself. That's what you're trying to do. Flattery is that salesmen are often trained in flattery and it's sinful. In Psalm 12 and verse 2, here's an interesting, obscure passage. They speak idly, everyone with his neighbor, with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips. That's a poignant thought. Don't flatter because the Lord may just remove your lips. Paul was careful to do the opposite. He rebuked and exhorted with godly authority so that those who were in sin and error could repent and believe and be saved. If you don't communicate enough for a person to be saved... You haven't delivered the mail. And if you avoid the riot, you're simply canceling the revival. Okay? See, the same gospel that brings revival in one individual or another is the same words that are going to cause the riot in the others who are not receiving it. So if you decide to avoid the riot, you just canceled the revival. So instead, we should go in with the understanding that if I do this right, some people are going to be saved and some people are going to be mad. And that's what we see in the life of Paul. And it's not because of his attitude. It's not because he's disrespectful. It's simply because he stands faithful to the truth. Then he says, nor as a cloak of covetousness. God is witness. Now, a cloak is a covering for the sake of appearance. When you are, quote, in it for the money, uh, you have to hide that fact. And so a cloak of covetousness is a way of hiding the fact that you're really in it for the money. In Acts chapter 20, and verse 33, we have a, a kind of a opening up of this idea. He says, I coveted no man's silver or gold or apparel, Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who were with me. I've shown you in every way by laboring like this, that you must support the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. The apostle Paul was not covetousness. He was not in it for the money. You don't do what he did for the money, It's not worth it. He did it because he loved God and God loved the people that he was sent to reach. And as a Jewish rabbi, he is going to a Gentile world, which was pretty, pretty uh, much of a cultural um, offense to his Jewish culture. And yet he says, I became all things to all men that I might by all means win some. So Paul's example mobilized those who were lazy to get to work, to start earning their keep. Let him who stole steal no more, but rather let him work with his hands the thing which is good in order that he have, may have something to share with others in their time of need. He says, we did not seek glory from man, nor did we seek glory from men either from you or from others. Galatians chapter one and verse 10 kind of opens this idea up. He says, for do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. You can't serve both God and man. He says, but I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which we preach, was preached by me is not according to man, For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through revelation of Jesus Christ. So we have here, and we saw that extended passage where Paul's explaining how he became the apostle that he was, that he is not uh, coming in delivering the mail for some other human being, but rather delivering the message that God has entrusted to him. The gospel that Paul preached was never pleasing to sinful man. And the initial response of everyone was to be offended by the idea that they even need to be saved. You know, But God is the one who opens hearts and those who believed were saved. God is the one who approves. In 2 Timothy 4 verse 1, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word, Timothy. Be ready in season and out of season. Don't say, "Uh, I can't do that right now. It's out of season. (laughs) It's always in season to take the gospel to those who are lost. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. Notice how long-suffering Buffers the what could be the rudeness of uh, rebuking and exhorting. You're speaking in such a way that people have a chance to believe. So, Paul is telling us that we have authority when we proclaim the gospel, but we must preach every sermon as one who is accountable to God and not to man. So, that means in practice you're not preaching in such a way as to get the approval of your audience, but rather to receive the approval of God that you delivered the message faithfully to that audience and then allowed God to the, to do the work of saving, opening hearts and minds to receive the truth. So we want to please God, not our human audience. Now, our audience may not believe or agree with the truth. This is something we should expect to be the norm rather than the exception. 1st or 2nd Timothy chapter 4 and verse five, 3 through 5 for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires because they have itching ears they will heap up for themselves teachers and will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned to marvel comics. No, fables. But you be faithful and watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So we see here the impact that Paul had because he was to be approved by God rather than by man. So, even though we are not, uh, even though we are, let me stop and read that again. Even though we are apostles, we did not make demands for our personal benefit. We see in First Thessalonians 1 verse 6 that Paul makes this statement that even though he's an apostle, he is not going to use that position uh, to his own benefit. In 1 Corinthians 9:11, he writes, "If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things?" If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more so? Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but endure all things lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. Now, this points to a very important truth. Just because you have the right to do something doesn't mean you have to do it. You know, I've had many times counseling with a couple where one or the other in the, in the, in the uh, marriage has the right to divorce according to the scriptures because unfaithfulness has taken place. And they have the right to walk away from that marriage because Jesus mentioned uh, for fornication, for unfaithfulness. But you don't have to exercise that right. I mean, I'm not saying you can't, but I'm saying you don't have to. And I've seen marriages healed because of forgiveness, because of repentance, and it becomes a stronger marriage than ever because it's been tried by this tremendous fire of unfaithfulness. And so I want to encourage you to understand not just in regard to marriage, but in regard to uh, you have the right to receive compensation as a minister of the gospel. Those who preach the gospel are to live by the gospel, but you don't have to. If there's a good reason not to, if you think it might interfere with people perceiving your, your credibility as a minister of the gospel, you can choose, as Paul did, to not accept remuneration. And that's great. More power to you. But don't make that mean that others who do need the remuneration and who do receive it are any less spiritual than you are. If the situation does not require them to forego this right, then don't think ill of them because they enjoy the benefits of this right. So, who is a faithful minister of the gospel? A minister who is preaching with the power of God, who is committed to the truth of God, who is living a life of sexual purity before God, who is obedient to the will of God by being ordained, who is accountable to God in all that he preaches, and finally, who is seeking only to please God. These six attributes mark the life of a faithful minister of the gospel. And this is what we should be looking for in all periods in church history. So I know that here at uh, Gracious Cross, you will be going through a process of identifying ministers of the gospel, identifying teachers and identifying elders. And these are the things that you should be looking for uh, in the context in which we're living. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your wisdom in allowing the Apostle Paul to provide us with this clear list of the marks of a faithful minister of the truth. May we take this to heart. May those of us who are men in the church aspire to have all of these marks in our own personal lives. May we be approved by God And may we be recognized by men uh, as having your call upon our lives. And we give you all the praise and all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.